This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. We're back now with part two of the World Shared Practice Forum with Dr. Adrian Randolph discussing sepsis in the pediatric patient. Um, can we talk a little bit about now um, management and, um, and uh, guidelines that um, can steer us in the right direction? Um, as you well know, the Surviving Sepsis um, campaign has um, typically produced a guideline roughly every four years. I know one recently came out. Um, and these tend to be joint American-European statements, and so it's really a, you know, a, a international effort on guidance. What should we know about the most recent surviving sepsis uh, guidelines? Yes, um, so the surviving sepsis uh, campaign, um, as you mentioned, is supported by the, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine and Society of Critical Care Medicine, very international collaborative effort. Previous versions, there was sort of a pediatric subsection of the guideline with caveats. So after they did the whole guideline for adults, there was a pediatric subsection, and then there was, you know, this is the same in children, this is the same in children, this is the same, but this, do this, this, do that, you know. And there was different parameters, of course, for cutoffs, physiologic cutoffs for, for children. Um, and also noting that, you know, ECMO, use of ECMO in pediatric sepsis is more common and accepted rescue therapy. Um, this time, the pediatric version of the guideline is being done independently. It's ongoing, it's an international effort. The, the European Society and the Society for Critical Care Medicine are both working together. There's a very large group of people working on this. Um, but that's actually fantastic because it really allows us to review the data in children very critically and also come up with where do we really need more data in children um, and what should be the priorities. Um, so that will be forthcoming, but the adult guidelines are out, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, it's the shift is to emphasize a bit more early recognition and management and um, to really emphasize the need for these trigger tools and these screening tools and to implement some of that sepsis three work um, to try to get these patients off the ward and triaged early and identify them in the emergency department quickly um, and to do the appropriate interventions and then to um, really focus on, you know, what interventions should you do. Some of these are, um, you know, similar to the prior and there's not much change. Um, you know, emphasizing source control, identifying where's this coming from, because if you have a appendicitis that's perforated, you're, you know, and you're not on top of that or some type of abscess, um, you know, you need to, or, or you know, volvulus, um, you need to treat that very quickly um, and, to focus still on antibiotics in the first hour. There is still strong evidence about get those antibiotics in in the first hour. And re they recommend if somebody has sepsis, you know, which now these patients are sicker, 
the with the new definition, empiric broad spectrum therapy, um, you know, to cover all likely pathogens initially, if not, you know, and titrating it depending on how sick the patient is and what the risk factors are. They also recommend this time 30 per kilo. So instead of this 20 and then 20 and then, you know, just hit them with 30 per kilo. These are the adult guidelines. Yep, within the first three hours. So it used to be, you know, shove that fluid in really quickly. People are kind of backing off on that um, from these guidelines elsewhere because there isn't really strong data saying, there's strong data about antibiotics in the first hour, but there is not strong data that you need to push huge amounts of fluids in the first hour. But you need to give some fluid, and 30 per kilo is a, re is a reasonable approach at, for initial fluid resuscitation. And then re reassessment. Just keep reassessing and deciding what you need to do. Um, starting off with crystalloid, that hasn't changed. Um, crystalloid is first-line therapy. And then using albumin in addition to crystalloid, if they are getting substantial amounts of crystalloid, although that's not... Um, based on much evidence. It's a weak recommendation, but they did um, put that in. Now, one thing that the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines has two publications um, that are commonly referenced. One is in critical care medicine and has the whole guidelines. And then um, on the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines website, um, campaign um, website under guidelines, you can have all these slide sets and tools and, you know, they have tons. They really want to um, disseminate this. They really want people to use this and they're freely available all kinds of educational tools. But in the intensive care medicine, they publish sort of a nuts and bolts of how do you implement this? And there's some really good um, ideas. Uh, um, as, you know, there's some figures about fluids, um, for example, um, talking about that 30 per kilo. Now, if somebody is doesn't have any respiratory you know, concerns and there's, they don't have any heart issues, congestive heart failure or end-stage renal disease, you just push it as fast as you can, that 30 per kilo. But if somebody has, you know, congestive heart failure, you may not want to just push 30 per kilo of fluid, you know, quickly. And in our population, you know, a pediatric patient with congenital heart disease, you know, um, mitral valve issues, et cetera. You want to titrate things. You want to be careful about what you're doing and, and what is the problem and really want you to think about what you're doing and monitor. Um, and if you have pneumonia and you, or, and you have acute lung injury, you know, and you push all that fluid, you could precipitate respiratory uh, failure. So you, if you're going to be doing all that, giving all that fluid, you better be prepared to intubate the patient. And so they note that. And so these are more practical considerations of how you titrate fluid and, um, and what you should monitor for. And following up on lactate, you know, if you're giving all that fluid, are you monitoring the lactate? And are you monitoring the urine output? What is your uh, parameter for how much fluid to give? Second, um, you know, they came up with this parameter of 65 millimeters mercury mean blood arterial blood pressure um, with patients with septic shock, and um, and that's the definition of septic shock. And um, they recommend in adults norepinephrine is your first line agent in adults. There's is you know strong data that dopamine can be harmful 
and there's New England Journal randomized trials published in New England Journal on dopamine and other um, journals. In adult patients. In adult patients showing worse outcome. Um, and then they recommend adding vasopressin or epinephrine as a second line agent if you're not able to achieve, if you have refractory shock, although there's not as much evidence supporting that. And then if the shock isn't resolving quickly, they really want you to do an echocardiogram, get a better evaluation of what is going on here, you know, and, um, and really use dynamic variables to estimate fluid response, things that change, you know. Um, other things, even the, the leg lift test, you know, the old fashioned lift up their leg and all of a sudden their blood pressure, well, they may need more fluid. You know, there's, so do a test, do an intervention and see um, if um, things improve to kind of guide what is the problem here. Is it a pump problem? Is it a, you know, is the heart not pumping effectively or is it intervascular volume or often a combination of both? Um, that's the problem. Um, and they want you to use lactate to guide your um, resuscitation, which is a suggestion based on weak quality of evidence, um, but there, um, but it's still coming up more and more to, if it's available, to monitor the lactate. It may not be available in every institution, but I believe it's increasingly available in, in many institutions. Um, and they've made some of the bedside diagnostics um, more, you know, the cost down and the rapidity of getting the value back quicker. So um, there is, five, um, you know, studies looking at lactate um, guiding therapy um, um, and um, showing um, a improved outcomes over, um, you know, not using lactate. So, um, but overall the quality and numbers of patients in these studies was small, but this is something we really need to do to look at more in children. And then, um, so, so basically it's still some of the same stuff, source control, IV fluids, antibiotics, um, the, the fluids is now 30 per kilo and within the first three hours and, you, and, and wanting to get it started fairly quickly, really be aware of what's going on with the patient otherwise that the fluids might affect. Get those antibiotics in within the first hour, that's key priority. And uh, keep assessing this, this ongoing assessment. And then they're now really bringing up this, you know, guiding your resuscitation with normalizing lactate. Although still they, you know, note that it's based on fairly weak evidence. Um, Adrian, that's a wonderful overview of the adult guidelines that were recently published. Can I ask you this question? Um, you know, you and I have practiced together for 20 years, and I don't think I've ever asked you this, but um, when I am taking care of a patient in the ICU and it's a, it's a teenager, it's probably a child who's uh, post-pubertal and, and has fully developed into their adult body. Uh, and it could be a 14-year-old boy who weighs 70 kilos, 80 kilos. Um, I'm, I'm looking at that 14-year-old, 70, 80 kilo person, and I'm asking myself, should I be treating them like an adult or a child? And I think I'm pretty sure I, I start to treat them more like an adult than I do a child. How should we be thinking about this transition? I know there's not a hard and fast point that they transition, but when, when do you start thinking this, this patient's more like an adult than a, than a child and, and I'm, therefore I'm going to be using some of the evidence that comes from adults to treat them? Mm -hmm. That's a very good question, Jeff, and I think that, you know, that's an area that's really ripe for study. Um, 
I think that, you know, if you're talking about the otherwise healthy population, is what's the difference between somebody who's 17 and a half and somebody who's 18 years in one day? You know, really nothing. And um, probably the, you know, I've always advocated that studies should be done in these young, healthy adults that go to these adult hospitals and our teenagers because they're more similar. Our teenagers are more similar to their 25 to 30-year-old patient than their 30-year-old is to their 65-year-old patient as far as underlying health issues, et cetera, you know, of the, of the previously healthy group. And they're, that, that group, you know, it takes a lot to get a previously healthy teenager sick enough to come to the ICU with an infection. Often those infections are severe, like Lemire syndrome or, uh, you know, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, um, necrotizing pneumonia, things like that, that, you know, with flu, something like that, that could, um, you know, get, some, get a strapping healthy, you know, um, teenager um, into the ICU. Um, and so we don't, as, we don't see as many of the previously healthy crowd, but those that we see tend to be really sick. Um, and there's nothing, you know, there's really no guidance as to what guidelines you should use, but I agree with you that the adult guidelines, they're simpler and, um, you know, I think it gives good guidance. We should be aware of them because we also take care of adults, you know, probably all pediatric ICUs with a certain proportion of our patients are adult. But then we also have all these special, you know, children that are, um, you know, kind of grew up in our care system and, you know, may even be the size of a five-year-old, even though they're 14. And, you know, what do we do about those patients? You know, are these adult guidelines better for the 17-year-old who's 30 kilos and, um, you know, uh, has uh, heart issues and, you know, underlying chronic um, issues. I think that's where our clinical expertise has to come in and, and decide how best to try titrate things for these other older patients. But I'm with you that I think, you know, when you see, especially, you know, as you get into 15 onwards and even, you know, teen, teenagers that are post-pubertal, um, the, there's no reason the adult guidelines may not be relevant if they, you know, for all other purposes, are adults, you know, um, and that those blood pressure parameters are appropriate. Um, so it, it comes to, up to clinical judgment, and the truth is that the pediatric and adult guidelines are not that different, so either way you're not going to get into that much trouble. Um, but there recently was published the, um, you know, new guidelines for how you manage shock in children updated guidelines, um, the hemodynamic support guidelines, and they do differ, you know, between children and adults some. And so that's where um, there's some discrepancy there on, you know, types of vasopressors um, to use um, that isn't um, with the the same as the adult guidelines. And so that's where your clinical judgment would have to come into play and we really need more data. Uh, so Adrian, could we turn to those guidelines um, published in Critical Care Medicine in June of 2017 that for uh, hemodynamic support for uh, the pediatric and the neonatal patient? Um, what is new or different or what should we know about what those guidelines recommend for hemodynamic support of these septic patients? 
the, the algorithm for managing shock. You know, they, they put the patients into three, you know, basic categories. Um, you know, they really want you to recognize shock, um, to follow the PALS guidelines. Um, and, you know, they still say push 20 per kilo of fluid if they don't have hepatomegaly or rouse crackles on their um, clinical exam and then keep reassessing going up to 60 per kilo. So that didn't change. Remember we talked about the 30 per kilo as the initial push for adult patients. Um, they want you to correct hypoglycemia, hypocalcemia, and then um, begin antibiotics right away. And that's in the first five minutes. Now, you know, um, that is um, hard to do in five minutes, you know, um, I, but you start that process. And then if they're fluid refractory shock, um, they want you to begin a peripheral um, IV or IO inotrope infusion. And the first choice drug is epinephrine. Now there's a single center um, trial um, that compared epinephrine to dopamine and found decreased mortality with epinephrine. But it's a single center, relatively small trial, but that's all, all the data that we have. So in this um, guideline, they still go into those three categories of cold shock, um, with a low blood pressure, and then you want to, um, you know, you start with, with epinephrine for cold shock, um, and you can still use dopamine if you, epinephrine's not available, and dopamine is available in most emergency rooms. The nurses know how to mix it up. It's often pre-mixed, and that's why people still start with dopamine, and some people feel more safe giving it peripherally, although it can still cause a bad infiltrate um, like epinephrine can. You know, but it says to start with epinephrine and then titrate. Um, and if you have warm shock, it's still norepinephrine. And if you have normal blood, and these are both with low blood pressure, right? Um, and if you have normal um, blood pressure and cold shock um, and you're on epinephrine, you, they want you to start milrinone or some type of nitroso vasodilator, um, maybe um, levosimindin, um, to um, if none of these things um, work. And um, it's still similar to what was published before, but the first line agent is epinephrine. So you're supposed to start epinephrine if they have fluid refractory shock. And you're still supposed to give the 60 per kilo and then start the vasopressors. Um, and then if you have persistent um, catecholamine resistant shock, um, they want you to evaluate for a pericardial effusion, um, look for pneumothorax, look for other causes as was before. And if they have um, refractory shock, you know, ECMO is still a rescue therapy. If despite giving all these different things, the um, patient is not, you're not able to maintain the blood pressure. So Adrian, um, as you've noted, this is a World Health Organization priority for the first time um, in increased recognition that we should be aggressively identifying and treating sepsis. Um, as you know, at our institution, I think we've always uh, tried to identify it early and make sure antibiotics are in, but for sure, at our institution, there is a renewed effort to um, identify the patients and uh, get a trigger going, get the antibiotics in. But um, is that really going to push us in the direction that we need to go? Is this the, is this the best methodology to follow to pursue quality, and how are we going to measure this? Now that's an excellent question 
Jeff, because along with all of these guidelines and recommendations and mandates really now is a global health priority for early recognition. Um, and there are some states, for example, um, New York State has a mandate um, for early recognition um, based uh, in part on the unfortunate death of a young child um, from sepsis that was not recognized um, and intervened on named Rory Staunton. The, um, they came up with the state mandate for early recognition of sepsis and they monitor it. And there was a recent New England Journal article showing that it actually, since they made this mandate and these interventions has improved outcomes. So expect more of that to come. Expect that to move across the United States, that there will be these mandates that it's no longer acceptable to miss these cases. Um, and that, that, you know, if, you, if they met criteria for your guidelines, you need to have institutional guidelines are now mandated by most of these um, initiatives. In the United Kingdom, there's this sepsis six it's a national guideline to not miss sepsis, and it's everywhere. The sepsis, they can come up with their own tools or they can use ones that are um, given freely available, but that early recognition piece and in early intervention with the antibiotics and the fluids is um, now, you know, it's really a mandate um, to make sure that that happens. The same in Australia, there's a sepsis kills campaign um, with the same thing, all of these um, tools that are available. So a recognition bundle, a trigger tool in this sepsis hemodynamic parameters guidelines and also in that surviving sepsis guidelines and it's for sure gonna be in the pediatric surviving sepsis um, campaign guidelines um, as it was in adults is sort of mandatory that you do something for early recognition of sepsis in your institution. Now we've had, as you mentioned, a lot of that going on, especially in the emergency room, now on the wards um, in our hospital. Um, and we've published from our institution studies showing that we've improved our patient outcomes by doing that. Um, but people who don't implement that um, are gonna have a hard time showing, um, you know, especially proving that some of their um, morbidity and mortality associated with sepsis wasn't preventable. So you need to collect the data. You need to have this recognition bundle. You need to have a resuscitation bundle for sepsis that you have a, a timing of when you're gonna obtain IV access and that you time it. In our ER, they have clocks that they hit the stop clock and it's gotta be done within an hour because otherwise you get busy, you know, you're spending 20 minutes getting IV access and you don't get the antibiotics in and ordered and nope, you know, you got five minutes to get IV access and you, if you can't get it, you use other means of, um, you know, interosseous access if the patient, depending on the patient situation. And, um, and you better get those antibiotics in within an hour and as soon as they say the word sepsis, the clock is ticking and they have shown that they can improve compliance with that and outcomes improve and not just our institution, but other ones um, get those, the, the hemodynamic support guidelines that were published in June want you to get the fluid resuscitation started within 30 minutes, um, get that antibiotic access, IV access within five, fluid resuscitation within 30, get those IV antibiotics initiated within 60 minutes 
um, and then begin inotropic infusion within 60 minutes um, if you need it, if you've given them the appropriate fluid amount and they aren't responsive. So there's first that recognition bundle, then the resuscitation bundle, then the stabilization bundle, so that you're monitoring and optimizing all of this and that you're documenting that you did so, right? And then the performance bundle. Now you've got to show your numbers. Are you adhering to these trigger resuscitation stabilization bundles? Because you can have these pieces of paper, but if you don't have the data to show that you adhere to them, and then you've got to, um, if they're not, you've got to do a root cause analysis, you know, dig back to see what's the problem here. And that's how they came up, for example, with the clocks in our ER, because it's very hard to monitor time. But when you've got a ticking clock there that you can see, um, and you've got feedback that you didn't get those antibiotics going or the fluid within your time frame, then um, it pushes people to be aware of the time. And then, so it has, you know, sort of a plan, do, study, act, quality improvement cycle where you have these three types of bundles, recognition, resuscitation, and stabilization, and you're monitoring your data. And, um, and you're improving it constantly over time, and you may be comparing it to other institutions. And so this is, um, this is the way forward, this is happening. It's happening in the United Kingdom, it's happening in uh, Australia, it's happening in New York State for recognition and initial resuscitation. Um, and those people who are doing this and auditing it have found that their outcomes are improving, which is very strong evidence that this, um, these interventions are really important in decreasing the morbidity and mortality associated with sepsis. Now I would like to turn to our audience and ask a question. In your response, please state your city and country location. The question is this. In the region where you practice, are there any national or regional guidelines related to pediatric sepsis? In your ICU, do you follow recognition, resuscitation, or stabilization bundles relating to sepsis? We're back now with Dr. Adrian Randolph. Adrian, can I ask you this? Um, you said earlier that the Sprout study, that point prevalence study, looking at the burden of sepsis across intensive care units across the world, 120-something centers, documented that um, some 25% of these patients die from sepsis, uh, despite being admitted to an intensive care unit environment. And so now I'm wondering, um, at our center and in centers around the world, people are implementing um, these trigger and resuscitation bundles, et cetera, and, and looking at their outcomes. And um, what, what decrease in baseline mortality from sepsis should we expect from the implementation of this more, much more methodical, time-based, targeted approach? In, in your view, if somebody's got a, a baseline uh, mortality rate from sepsis of 10% right now, and now they're going to they're going to implement these these bundles. What do you think? How low is it going to go? How fast should it go? Well, that's a tough question, um, Jeff. And as you know, now I'm I'm wading into more opinion than evidence. Um, um, but the states, uh, the data from states that did implement this, like New York State do show an impact that there's a huge um, decrease, you know, that there's a decreased 
uh, morbidity and mortality from sepsis. Um, there's other, there are other studies in children showing a decreased um, uh, length of stay with patients with sepsis um, in our emergency room um, from years ago when we uh, started the intervention. Um, and um, I would say that, and this is something that, you know, when you start paying attention to something and you start really um, intervening and focusing in on a patient population, in general, you, you get that 10% gain pretty quickly of, of improving the outcome. Um, but what we wanna see is really, you know, that, that no child dies of sepsis, you know? What we wanna see is um, that we can cut that mortality at least by half, you know? And that these kids, you know, leave the hospital the same way they came in or better, you know? So um, I would say that it's an iterative process and it is clear that there is a lot of room for improvement. Any, as you mentioned, sepsis is a construct. Our management is multi-element, multiple cycles going on at the same time. Um, and especially in the ICU, it's an ongoing process with that septic patient for 24, 48 hours. And we don't have guidelines in as much detail as we do in the first hour. That's where the biggest room for improvement is. That's where if we start doing not just the initial few hours, but the whole package um, and preventing those secondary complications, those nosocomial infections, you know, adverse events, you know, um, figuring out how are we, when and how should we um, do invasive mechanical ventilation optimally in these patients because sepsis, a lot of them have severe, severe pneumonia, ARDS, et cetera. That's where we're going to really lower the mortality. Some of this is gonna be getting beyond antibiotics and fluids and cardiovascular support. It's gonna be immune modulation. It's gonna be figuring out how to control the immune system and its effect on the body that's causing the trauma to the, to, to the organs and tissues to, um, that ends up causing the multi-organ failure and death. So that is the frontier. And once we get into that phase, you know, we'll make a certain dent in it, hopefully at least 10% drop, maybe 20% drop by just doing some of these, you know, fairly straightforward things, um, interventions. But then the next phase is gonna be immune modulation, like it is in cancer, you know, um, and understanding which patients need what, which ones need more Im immune support, you know, and which ones may need certain things downregulated and what to downregulate and what and how to prevent some of these complications. Personalized, targeted to their immune response at that time. Yes. Um, five years ago, I know I kept thinking, well, we're still measuring white blood cell count and lactate, but five mm -hmm. years from now, we'll have a panel of inflammatory markers, but we're still not there yet. Are you aware of any uh, clinical centers around the world who do regularly measure a panel of um, inflammatory markers and are acting on them, or is that still in the research phase? Well, it's still in the research phase, although um, more and more people are really focused on this immune paralysis because it's associated with worse outcomes. You know, how to intervene on it 
and you know, um, do you really want to return on all those white cells? Is that going to be, you know, we, there's a there are a paucity of trials of doing an intervention to reverse it and showing an improved outcome. And that's the frontier. That's the next phase. And there's tr there are trials being designed for that, and and some ongoing. But um, as far as I know, it's still in the research phase. But the amount of research being published and the tools we have at our disposal of doing some of these assessments at the bedside is really rapidly increasing. And, um, you know, the companies who develop these biomarkers, assays, they, there's, there are now, you know, decreasing limitations on what you can do in a bedside assay, including even transcriptomes, you know, RNA gene expression data, getting it very quickly um, from some of these, you know, laboratories. So, you know, we've, we're still using the same labs we've, we've used for over 20 years, the same, mm -hmm. <laughs> same tools, maybe a bit more commonly using lactate because it's more available, but, um, but soon there will be these, you know, cytokine assays and and then there are antibodies against certain cytokines now increasingly being used, um, like tocalizumab in patients who get with um, refractory leukemias that are getting the targeted CAR T cell that are now, um, you know, downregulating the immune response. That is the next frontier here, in, you know, but we don't know who to target, what to target, but that's what people are really, really intensively working on. Adrian, um, I guess uh, as we end here, uh, what I'm wondering is this, um, as you've well described, this is such a dynamic process. The body is changing rapidly. And um, I agree with you that I can follow what to do in the first three hours, but I'm thinking of ARDS, and ARDS is, I think it's turned out to be relatively simple. We implement lung protective strategy. I look at the tidal volumes and I make sure expired tidal volumes are titrated to ideal body weight, keep them five to seven cc's per kilo. And then I follow that for days. But here, um, after I've done the initial resuscitation, I'm not really sure where I am or what I should be doing or how I should be tracking it. Are there tools out there for decision support after the first few hours to help us monitor, track, and guide what we should be doing? Well, Jeff, that is a really, um, really important question because there are a lot of recommendations that get listed more and more and more added on as you should be doing this, you should be doing that, you should be doing this. But at the bedside, you're doing all these things at once and you're getting data back. And not only that, you're handing off to the next person, this patient, and how do you summarize and hand off where you've been, where are you at? Even with all of our electronic uh, medical records, it's often very hard to figure out what's the fluid status, where have the vasopressors been going, you know? So we've been um, working on a tool called the, a, a decision support tool, just focused on what you're talking about, is the first 48 hours, because that's really the golden time. The first hours are key because you gotta get those things in. But if you're gonna really make a dent in sepsis and you're really gonna improve our ability to study it, you really need to systematize and improve what you're doing in the first 48 hours and give feedback 
and it's too complicated for any one person to, you know, in, any physicians to really do the same thing, even if we thought we were in the, you know, and carry on and have the same transfer of information. So the goal of this, and we call it um, the sepsis rescue um, strategy. And so basically rescue stands for that initial recognition is the R and then evaluation evaluate for the organ dysfunction, degree of organ dysfunction is the initial evaluation, and then support the fluids, the antibiotics, the vasopressors, and then consider things. There's a lot of things that you really need to consider in that first pass that you don't wanna miss because the patient's not gonna respond. If, for example, you, you have a patient who ha could have a resistant gram-negative rod and comes from a place just visited a place where that's endemic or a hospital was transferred or has been on an antibiotic for a long time and isn't getting better, you know, don't start an antibiotic with the same coverage. You've got to really think that through because you could do all these things, but you're not going to get an improved outcome. Um, you want to know, is that patient, what are the kidneys doing? You know, is this patient, is, could something have, um, you know, really think through all of the different underlying things Look back at the patient history. Does this patient have a history of cardiovascular dysfunction? Well, then I better get that ultrasound, you know, echocardiogram of the heart earlier than later because I don't want to be missing, um, you know, that because I would change my strategy if that's the case of how I'm managing my vasopressors and support. Um, you want to also um, recognize things like, um, you know, consider is this flu season? Should I? Did I send a flu test? These are some of these things are treatable with antiviral addition of antiviral therapies. Um, also considering the source, you know, really think through, um, you know, in your evaluation, you did a focused clinical exam, but consider should I be doing some other things? You know, did I, what's going on there with the abdomen that's so distended? Is it, should I be considering these other things that I need to work up? And then understand, loop back and say, okay, I'm at this point, what am I thinking is going on with this patient? And as you keep going around this loop, then, you know, in summarizing, you now at the second loop, you should have already given your first round of fluids and antibiotics and started. You're now um, evaluating again, okay, what's the response? What was the, there was no response to the fluids. There was, you know, um, I'm now up to how much? 60 per kilo. I'm reevaluating here and, um, you know, my feet are cold as ice. You know, um, I'm looking through all the vital signs. I now have my lactate back. You know, your, your focused evaluation, now reevaluating, thinking it through, and you're changing your support based on that evaluation. It's a dynamic process, right? And you've documented what you were looking at and why you changed your support strategy because it's often very hard. We write orders, but we don't say we did this, you know, because of X or Y. We, you know, change the vasopressors, but there's no justification for why we, you know, gave more fluid or gave blood or, you know, um, did it change the antibiotic strategy. And so then you consider again, now you have a broader thing, group of items that you can reconsider. For example, um, you know, in your first pass consideration, you should have noted whether this patient could be adrenally insufficient. You know, is this an oncology patient? Let's look up their steroid history, um, et cetera. But now you may need to consider this as refractory shock. 
do I need to um, start some steroid support to, um, is this patient adrenally insufficient um, with acquired adrenal insufficiency? Um, and there's multiple other considerations that you may need to um, think through. And then now you summarize again, what are you thinking now? You're now five or six hours into this, you know, what is your real summary here? And at, as new data came in, um, you know, what is your thought process of what is going on? And then you just keep going around this loop. But by using this decision support tool and also giving you feedback. So, you know, we have so much information at our disposal with these electronic medical records. It's overwhelming amount of information uh, of data. We have so much data at our disposal, but very little of it is informative. What we need is a little thing up in the corner saying lactate going down, you know, um, blood pressure. Here's the vasopressors going down. Here's the blood pressure stabilizing, you know, um, looking at renal, you know, urine output. That is a key vital sign, you know, is your urine output stable and improving in somebody who's oliguric? All those things are reassuring. So when you hand off to me, I have this little monitors of all these different things and then I just keep monitoring that. I know what you were thinking when, how are you going around the loop, why you change those antibiotics, you know, um, and it's documented for the next person who you hand off um, the patient to as well. And given that a many patients are taken care of by a group of, of clinicians, including nurses and, uh, you know, multiple people, everybody's seeing some of the same information and decision-making. So that's what I think really needs to happen is for this common syndrome of sepsis, you know, this common problem of, of sepsis and in the ICU, high fatality, we really need to take a approach that we really get some support in our decision-making and we standardize how we're thinking about these categories, not in a rigid way, but just systematically so that we keep going around and, and um, until we get the patient out of the, the life-threatening condition and can be reassured and, you know, then move on. I'm thinking of the analogy of the uh, resuscitation guidelines from the American Heart Association to continually yes. reevaluate five yes. H's, five T's, yes. but this is drawn over 48 hours with a dashboard where you're looking at trends. Yes, and, it, and I think that we, this is a very good point because the American Heart Association and sepsis could be considered a cardiovascular, you know, especially septic shock, a cardiovascular um, complication. Um, you know, there is a whole algorithm when we do our ACLS training, advanced cardiac life support training for stroke, for managing an, a myocardial infarction. It's iterative. It loops around. What should you do next? What should you do next? You know, and they even have these um, simulations with the animated patient going in that you have to do all these different things. We, they don't have that for septic shock. And that's really what is needed. What do you, you know, a, the, a really rigorous education that is systematizes how you think about the problem. Because by doing that, you're less likely to miss things. And you're more likely to consistently hand off the same information you know, from person to person. So it's understandable if we systematize how we're doing the sepsis handoff. Adrian, that's a wonderful summary and overview of a, 
a very uh, complex and um, ever-evolving topic, but certainly one of the most important topics in the care of children around the, the world. And so I suspect I speak for colleagues around the world in um, first thanking you for the work that you're doing with the International Sepsis Forum and the Sepsis Alliance, and secondly for sharing um, your knowledge uh, with us um, today and, and the earlier session that we showed previously. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you for giving us this me this opportunity to present on the World Shared Practices um, this update on sepsis. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org. Thank you.